0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Bruno Shirley, a co-host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Alice Colette about her new book, I Hear Her Words, an introduction to women in Buddhism. Alice, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me back.
0: Um Well, I know that you have answered this question before in a previous interview, but it is our traditional opening. How did you first come to work on this subject?
1: Um, Yeah, actually, uh, I've done a few interviews now over my career, and that is the usual warm-up question. So um, I I worry a little bit that I keep repeating the same answer here. So I would say to anyone listening who's heard other of my interviews, um, I do try hard not to repeat myself in interviews generally. But with regard to this question, uh, an answer to it that I know other people have found interesting is if I talk about uh, my grandmother and how I was introduced to gender politics at a very young age. So my grandmother grew up in Warthorne, London in the 1940s and the 1950s. And um, she was pleased with the opportunities that women had during the uh, war when the men were away at war. But then when women were forced back into the home or encouraged back into the home in the 1950s, it it was a source of frustration to her. Uh, We were a working-class family and there weren't many opportunities available to her. So when she saw things starting to change for women in the 1970s and the 1980s, she instilled in us her female grandchildren. Um, She would say to us, don't ever let anyone tell you you can't do something just because you're a girl. Now, so me, age four, five, six, I was told this constantly before really I'd become aware that that might even happen to me. So, um, you know, my response was kind of like, what, they're going to, are they? Why would they do that? And um, so before I really was fully consciously aware, I'm sure we all become aware of it as we grow up. Um, but that was instilled into me at, at a young age. So, I would say that when i started studying buddhism and studying the history of buddhism and studying the text of buddhism one of the things that i found most interesting was stories of inspiring women who seemed to me might well have had grandmothers like mine who encouraged them not to let anyone stop them being who they wanted to be and achieving what they wanted to achieve
0: that's um that's such a wonderful introduction to to the subject, I suppose, mm-hmm. um,
1: and I think it says something about my particular perspective on the subject as well, you know, and how I do concentrate on lives of it.
0: So to dive into the book, it, you have a, a lovely, a lovely line, a quotation actually quite later on from um, I. B. Horner, who's also maybe of that that wartime generation, or probably maybe slightly earlier actually. Um, where she writes, the life of women as nuns is worthy of more than the passing attention, which, with a few notable exceptions, is the most that it has ever been accorded in any treatises on Buddhism. So it's about 90 years since Ivy Horner wrote that line. Um, I wonder if that's actually a a good way to start talking about your book. Uh, Does that critique still hold up? And if so, how do you see your new book addressing this problem? Yeah, I
1: thought that was a good and interesting question, actually. And uh, even though I I quoted that from, from Horner in the book, it didn't occur to me to think of that um, until I read your question. Uh, and I think in um, encyclopedias of Buddhism that are um, produced these days, probably it is the case that women are, uh, Buddhism and gender Buddhism and women are fairly well represented. But I don't know if that's the case with introductory books to Buddhism still. Um, So, my book, this book we were talking about today, I hear her words, this is an introductory book on women in Buddhism. And uh, I was approached by uh, Wintour's Publications, who published the book, uh, and and asked to write it, and asked to write it a few years before I agreed to write it. Now, Wintour's Publications are a publishing arm of a of a large uh, international Buddhist organization, and in the intervening years before when they first asked me to write it, and I agreed to write it, I did become aware that some practitioner communities were still using books on Buddhism and women that were published in the 1980s, so we're really quite out of date, because in the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a huge amount of new research on women in Buddhism. Now, I understood why they were consulting the books they were because those books were a bit more accessible to people who aren't academics and the majority of the work, almost the entirety of it, that's been done over the last 20 or 30 years on women in Buddhism is very academic in nature. So um, that experience made me realise that a book such as this would be of value. Uh, something that does surveys scholarship on Buddhism and women for the last uh, few decades, um, but presents all that in a more introductory way. And
0: and your book does provide a really thorough survey. Um, just you know to to make my appreciation for it clear from the outset. Thank you. Um, <laughs> One thing that interests me is you you structured it, because of course we always have to apply some structure to our surveys and to these, these two parts, asking questions about Buddhism and then voices through the centuries, part two. And it, it struck me reading particularly your introduction, this division speaks to some kind of theoretical argument about the relationship between um, an over-reliance on texts, which we have all been very guilty of at various points in Buddhist studies, versus lived experience, actual Buddhists. Um, I was wondering if you'd care to expand a little on this argument or about the division of the book.
1: Yeah, and I do go to, into that in some, de- um, in some detail in the introduction to the book. Uh, so in the introduction to the book, I talk about um, how we have understood women in the history of Buddhism through picking out certain things that exist in the text and making those, I call them uh, in the book, four recurring themes um, that we have, or um, scholars felt like we've discovered from reading texts about women in Buddhism. And those four recurring themes are that women are inferior to men, that it's bad karma to be reborn as a woman, that women can't become Buddhas, and the question of ordination and whether women can be ordained. Now, I talk about those in the introduction to the book, and I juxtapose those with uh, modern research um, in which modern Buddhist women are interviewed, and I particularly uh, make use of a book by Wei Yen, which is called um, Buddhist Nuns in Taiwan and Sri Lanka, a critique of Feminist Perspective, published in 2007. Uh, So what the author found when she interviewed uh, Buddhist women in Taiwan and Sri Lanka was that, for example, with regard to these four recurring themes, if we look in Buddhist texts, Buddhist texts often say it's fair karma to be reborn as a woman. But what the author found was that modern Buddhist women often don't think that, believe that, And that's not a particularly important aspect of their day-to-day life and their day-to-day Buddhist practice. So the over-reliance on text, as it's been called, has led us down certain paths which people might say, and to some extent are saying these days, were the wrong paths. Now, what I advocate in the book, and one of the whole um, kind of overarching themes of the book, is that it I wouldn't so much say this is an over reliance on text, but it's about using text in a certain way, and I would advocate using text in another way, whereby, coming back to my grandmother, maybe we could say, we centre on the lives of Buddhist women. So in these last twenty or thirty years we've had so much excellent research done by so many excellent scholars, which have revealed to us the lives of Buddhist women throughout the history of buddhism their lives and their contributions that have helped to make buddhism what it is today and so actually what i advocate is if we're looking at texts and and thinking about the history of buddhist women why don't we center the lives of these women instead?
0: it's a powerful (laughs) argument um and it, it, it strikes me when you talk about using the texts in new ways, that for all that this is an, an introductory work and it is extremely accessible, um, you do actually make some really fascinating arguments about those texts in ways that we might read them uh, more accurately to recover these slides. So I, I'm thinking particularly in chapter one, you make an argument about the origins of the rules for bikuni ordination, which we normally interpret as, oh yes, this is the classic example of subordination of women, the eight heavy rules. But you actually offer us an alternative uh, possible explanation or an alternative reading. Um, What is that? Would you care to expand on it at all?
1: Um, Yes. So the point that I make on that is that at the time Buddhism began in the ancient Indian context, you could say there wasn't really a clear comprehension of what an independent woman is. So um, now the, the India um, at the time and today is a huge geographical landscape. So it's not the case that this would have always been the case in every area or always been the case in every point in history but generally we could say that women were considered to be under the guardianship of men um, or to belong to men even. So the idea of Uh, an independent nun a nun, a Buddhist woman who's renounced the world, shaved her head, wearing robes, going off into the forest to meditate. There wasn't really a clear comprehension of who that person is within the the social order of the day or the social structure of the day. So what we see in the early text is examples of Buddhist women being sexually assaulted and there are rules in the monastic home that are there to protect women against being sexually assaulted. So, for example, women shouldn't travel alone, um, and if they spend the night somewhere, they should try not to be alone, but be with the group of mums instead. Uh, So my argument in relation to the eight special rules is that they were put in place to protect women from being subjected to any sort of sexual assault So the eight special rules are there to communicate that the nuns are under the guardianship of the monks, therefore not available in the way that they would have been considered to be available, i.e. sexually
0: available. So talking about um, subordination or or sexual availability for that matter, um, I think it's toward the the end of chapter one you write, when we ask the question, does Buddhism support gender equality? What do we mean by Buddhism? You know, th- these are questions about equality, or, or you know, your grandmother saying that, um, you know, don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. So, would you be willing to suggest an answer to that? You know, what do we mean by Buddhism? Does Buddhism support gender equality? Is a singular answer even possible?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the context of that chapter is that I do spend that uh, chapter one discussing this question because um, uh, the nature of Buddhist ethics I think makes it look as if Buddhist ethics um, supports um, advocacy of social justice perhaps slightly more than is actually the case. Um, So in this chapter I explore whether Buddhism supports gender equality and at the end of the chapter I uh, ask this question with an awareness of coming back to the lives of Buddhist women. So when I ask the question, what do we mean about Buddhism, what I mean by that is when we think of Buddhism, what Buddhism is, are we always completely and fully aware of the lives and contributions of countless women throughout the history of Buddhism that have helped to shape Buddhism and make it what it is today now if when we use the word Buddhism we are fully and completely and absolutely aware of the life of these women and aware of the contributions of them then does that reformulate somehow or change the meaning of the question to us yeah so um does even the question become less relevant if we include in our definition of Buddhism, the lives and contributions of women throughout the history of the tradition.
0: And of course, that sets up uh, part two of your book, right? The, the voices throughout the centuries section, where you turn to historical lives of individual Buddhist women. So I was wondering, before we talk about any of the individual chapters in that, what, what was your selection criteria for this section, generally, how did you choose which voices throughout which centuries? It, it's just always an interesting methodological question for me.
1: Yeah. So, so firstly, I would say it was it was a hard choice making the selection, and there are there's a lot of research uh, and a lot of the lives of of, of many women that I had to leave out, especially as this is an introductory volume. So, for example, I don't talk about Buddhist women in Nepal. I don't talk about Mongolia. I think one Vietnamese nun gets a passing mention. Um, but, the, you know, there's even the whole countries where <laughs> Buddhist women have practiced for centuries that I, that I unfortunately had to leave out in order to write an introductory book. And then the, the lives of, and, and the women I did uh, focus on, I tried to... Um, bring together a a selection of different women and and their lives and their teachings to show as much as I could a kind of representative sample of the different kind of contributions women uh, can make and and are making making and have made to Buddhism and what it is today. So, for example, I talk about a a Taiwanese nun, a very well-known Taiwanese nun called Chen Yen, a modern Taiwanese nun, uh, who is a leader of a big, uh, Buddhist organization in Taiwan. And her way of, um, advocating practice and her teachings are quite unique, I would say, in terms of her, the way in which she has attempted to address questions of gender and gender equality. So, um, what Chen Yen Advocates is and um in Taiwan the the Buddhist the, the female Buddhist deity Kuan Yin is uh, a very popular figure. Um, so what um Yin advocates is rather than we call on the Buddhist deity like the female deity Kuan Yin uh to come to our aid, which is traditionally can be traditionally part of the Buddhist tradition, she says instead we should imitate Kuan Yin in our Buddhist practice. And in doing this, she puts forward different attributes and characteristics of this female deity, Kuan Yin, and says that we should try to imitate them. Now, the characteristics and attributes of this female deity that she brings to the fore and highlights are what are traditionally thought of as feminine characteristics and and qualities like kindness and care and nurturing. Uh, And what she does is she says that all Buddhist practitioners should aspire to have those qualities in them, and for those qualities to be central to their Buddhist life and their Buddhist practice. Now, um, she has been criticised for um popularizing if you like, traditional and stereotypical ideas about uh feminine qualities and, and, and feminine and female nature. Um, but I, I, I put um. I wanted to include her because I think, you know, whether one accepts the criticisms or not, this is quite a unique and different and unusual attempt to deal with Buddhism and gender and, and gender politics.
0: Not to reveal my textualist leanings too heavily, uh, but I was very interested in, and I think that same chapter, chapter four, Um, you you spend some time looking at early disciples. I think this builds on your earlier work as well, Dhammedina, Pata Kundalakesa, and Pata And you make a point of comparing multiple biographies of these women across time. And I was wondering if you care to talk about, again, methodologically, like what do we learn from doing this, from reading different biographies of the same woman? And and
1: this is something that... um, you're right. I, I have talked about this in other of my research and, um, uh, the, uh, the director of Winter's publications had to keep telling me to not make this too academic and, uh, to make it a bit more simple and a bit more basic. Um, because I think that comparing different narratives or different, uh, biographies of different women can reveal a lot. Certainly it can, uh, instill in us not to take historical data at face value and not to accept all that we read in Buddhist texts as categorical examples of historical reality. Um, so to take a couple of the early nuns who were considered to be direct disciples of the Buddha, uh, one at least I think was, you mentioned, um, Gotami and Pathakura. Uh, now these two women, their biographies associated with them are both, stories that contain grief uh is said to have experienced the grief of the death of one child and she was sent to the buddha uh, in in order that he might um assuage her grief in some way uh patatara experienced grief relating to the death of two children a husband and other members of her family and those are the biographies usually connected to those two women except that in one buddhist tradition the biographies are switched round, so the grief story relating to Me becomes the grief story relating to kakarta so as i say what that shows us in relation to particularly the lives of women in buddhist history is not to think well there definitely was a nun with this name who was a direct disciple of the buddha and this is her story but to just um consider it to be more, a, a bit looser than that. Yeah, more broadly the case that there were nuns who were direct disciples of the Buddha, and probably some of the elements of some story w- will have some historical reality to them. Now I, I talk about the lives of these women in my 2016 uh, book, Lives of Early Buddhist Nuns. And I asked them, Martin Seeger, who's Professor of Thai Studies at the University of Leeds, to write an afterword for that book. Martin works on modern Thai Buddhist renunciate women, or Buddhist nuns you could say, and he has uncovered biographies of such women from the 1800s and 1900s. And I wanted and, and asked Martin to write an afterword for that book because one thing we do find is that the same struggles of these women, and some of Martin's work is oral history from people who knew these women. And some of the struggles that these modern Thai women faced when trying to be taken seriously as British practitioners, uh, trying to teach and teach men and women, trying to practice, were just the same kind of struggles that we see and find in these historical narratives. So even though we might not know exactly the names of these nuns or exactly their stories, these same struggles um, are there in the ancient stories, just as they are in
0: the modern biography. Uh, and it's these struggles of, of modern uh, ordained or enunciant women in, in South and Southeast Asia, um, as in Thailand, that you deal with in the following chapter, in Chapter 5. Where you also talk about modern responses to the absence of, or the, um, the, the discontinuity maybe, of the bhikkhuni order, um, and so you talk about alternative, uh, or attempts to restore the Bikuni ordination, you, uh, alternative, you know, quote unquote, renunciant lifestyles like the maichi in Thailand or Dasa Mata in Sri Lanka. Um, to ask a very, uh, maybe a provocative question, why wouldn't every maichi simply want to be a Bikuni, whether in a restored Theravada ordination or in another, um, ordination lineage, uh, from, from Korea, for example, I mean, why, why, why are there still maichis?
1: So the answer to that question, and uh yeah, I have had students ask that before, because I think superficially it seems as if 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 there isn't a nuns order and women can't be ordained to be fully ordained nuns, then they're always going to be inferior to monks. So if they live this renunciate lifestyle as my Jesus in Thailand, for instance, they're always gonna be in a position of inferiority and so if women don't want to become fully ordained nuns does that mean that they're saying they want to be inferior but that's the wrong way to think about the question um because inferiority of women is sown into the monastic hierarchy so that it's not actually a question of here are the two choices for you in one Scenario you are inferior to monks, and in the other scenario, you're not. It's more a case of in this scenario, you're inferior to the monks in in these ways, and in this scenario, you're inferior to monks in the other ways. So it's not just a choice of equality and not equality, which it superficially seems like, I think, uh, which is why I do get asked this question a lot. And, And I do talk in the book about the many, many different responses that there are um, to this question by renunciate women in South and Southeast Asia. For instance, there is a woman who says, well, yeah, almost what I have been saying then, and, and she says, uh, slightly different, as a Maidi, I'm not within the monastic structure and the monastic hierarchy. So I therefore don't consider myself inferior to monks. monk. If I became a fully ordained nun, I would be situating myself within the monastic hierarchy and I would have to then consider myself inferior to the monks. So therefore not taking ordination for her means that she is in a better position. Um, and as I say, there's a range of responses and another um, woman I remember that I quoted from said, well... Currently, I don't think it would benefit me or other women to take full ordination. I can't see that there would be any benefit for us. But I'm open to the possibility that there might be. So if I see and hear with women becoming fully ordained nuns and that meaning that their lives and the lives of others are improved, then I would consider it for myself.
0: Now, the situation is obviously different in... Uh East Asian Mahayana and Tibetan Vajrayana traditions, and you've already mentioned um, earlier Guanyin, but I was wondering, uh, you, you seem to draw a connection between the the different situation of um, attitudes towards women in these traditions and the greater prominence of Buddhist deities like Guanyin in these um, in these uh, East and Central Asian traditions. So, what what is that connection? What or what might that connection be? Maybe. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah again this is a, a question that uh, students like to ask in my experience and, and the, the reason that um I think I didn't have anything about it in the book and then again the windows director the director of the publishing house wanted me to put something in um, but it really isn't an easy question to answer there isn't an easy and there isn't an obvious answer and, and I think actually that the answer people want is that it does make a difference if you have a female deity it makes a difference the quality of the lives of female practitioners in within that tradition Um, but certainly there isn't any clear and categorical evidence that that's the case now um, you know i'm a scholar of uh, ancient indian history so in writing this book i had to research women in many different traditions and different time periods around the world and what i say in the book is that I think I might have seen in the biographies of women from Tibetan Buddhism some sort of strength of character of these women that I wondered and I wondered whether that existed in these biographies because there are female deities in Tibetan Buddhism but then there are female deities in East Asian Buddhist traditions as well and I didn't see any of the same things when I was researching East Asia not exactly in the same way as I saw in these Tibetan biographies. So, as I say, there's not an easy answer to this question, and I'm afraid usually not the answer that people want, I think. You know, there's no evidence, there's very little evidence that um, the existence of female identities does improve the lives of female practitioners.
0: But the more more complex answers are usually the more satisfying in the long run, right? Maybe. Um, So in the the final, I think, substantive chapter of the book, you discuss some of the attitudes towards women from um, troublesome or problematic to outright abusive that we've seen in Buddhist movements in the modern West. So really a broad geographic scope. Um, And you point out there's an apparently contradictory nature of these attitudes when viewed against Buddhism's general association with, I'm quoting here, compassionate action and the practice of ethics. So, how if we can um at all scholars or practitioners reconcile these apparent contradictions how do we account for some of the 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 truly awful attitudes and behavior towards women in western buddhism with this um you know this supposed compassion yeah Uh,
1: and i think that um yeah it's an apparent contradiction but it's a contradiction that's very difficult to untangle and especially, most especially, it's difficult to untangle in relation to the past but there are reasons as well sometimes why it's difficult to untangle um, in the modern world so um, I talk about uh, sexual abuse in that climate the sexual abuse in modern British traditions um, and I talk about for instance the Buddhist Sunshine Project which is a project that reveals sexual abuse in Shambhala International Buddhist tradition. Now, uh, sadly, some of the anonymous contributors to that have said that um, they they aren't any longer involved with a Buddhist organisation because they had this experience of of being abused. Now, for those people, I completely understand why that's the case, and you know, it's very it's. Um, I am just going to say sad, that doesn't seem to quite cover it really. Um, uh, it's completely understandable why having such negative experiences in a situation like that would put someone off wanting to be a Buddhist anymore, any longer, or consider themselves a Buddhist anymore, any longer. For those of us who haven't been subjected to the abuse, for us, it's not that difficult to say, well, that was an abuse that was done by one Buddhist teacher, but that isn't Buddhism per se. That's the actions of one Buddhist teacher. Like, say, for us who haven't experienced it, it's easy for us to comprehend that and perceive that, to see that. Not so easy for the people who have um, been subjected to Um, abusive um, relationships now in the past as well if we think about the past again it's much harder to untangle the contradiction because what is Buddhism really without Buddhist practitioners well you can say Buddhism is the teachings and the practices advocated by the Buddha But how do we know about them? Well, we know about them because of Buddhist practitioners, because Buddhist practitioners have transmitted them down the centuries. So how do we untangle what's something from the mind of a Buddhist practitioner and what's Buddhism per se, if you like? Um, So I think just as that is still a problem today, that has been a problem uh, even more even more difficult uh, even more difficult to untangle uh, when we think about the past
0: and perhaps that takes us right back to the argument you make in chapter two that misogynistic passages within uh, supposedly canonical or commentarial early commentarial texts have been given more attention than they warrant and why Why is that? Like, Why both have they been given so much attention, but also why is that emphasis unwarranted? Um, should we still be focusing on all the misogynistic things that Buddhaghosa says at times, for example?
1: Um, I think it's unwarranted because whilst it is true that there are misogynist passages in Buddhist texts and quite a few of them, if we think about how many Buddhist women there have been throughout the history of Buddhism, in the numerous countries that Buddhism has existed the amount of women that they've been and all the contributions that they've made to Buddhism far outweigh the number of misogynist passages that we have in Buddhist texts so once again, why don't we focus on them rather than on what's negative in, in the Buddhist text? Um, now, but the reason there has been a focus on the Buddhist texts. Is, is something that I'm very, very sympathetic towards. So um, when uh, feminists started um, studying Buddhist texts, second wave feminists in the 70s and 80s, uh, feminists would come with an agenda, and the agenda would be to right wrong. Now, I'm fully supportive of second wave feminism uh, and everything that was achieved, by second wave feminist movement, You know, I wouldn't be who I am today without all that, I'm sure. But when the feminists started studying the Buddhist texts, in, in order to address writing wrongs, you need to bring, you need to foreground the wrongs in order to make people aware of them, so then you can work towards writing them, yeah? So, for that reason, the misogynistic passages became centre stage in uh, research and and publications about women in Buddhism and gender in Buddhism. Uh, So what I'm advocating actually is that, well we've done that and maybe that was almost like a historical moment and necessary at the time, but now what I think we should do and what I'm advocating is focusing more on the lives of women in Buddhist history and their contributions to um, what Buddhism is today. Now I do make a point uh, when I'm talking about these misogynist passages as well that I don't think has been made before which is that if we look at how men are represented in these passages men really don't come off well either. And uh, men are, and maybe I'm caricaturing them a little bit but I think only a little bit you know the way men are represented are that there are they are so utterly and fully consumed with sexual desire. They have no control whatsoever. So almost from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, they're consumed with sexual desire and nothing else. You know that's that's all there is to them. And and obviously we know that that's not the case. So um, I think it's worth noting. At least that these passages that we call the misogynist passages are maybe to some extent, you know, mm, less of a, um, uh, not as intended to represent uh, social reality as sometimes they're taken to. Um.
0: So. I, I think that's a wonderful approach and a really wonderful thing to foreground in, in what you've you've said. You know, this isn't an introductory text. This is meant to be how people um, come to the history of women in Buddhism. And I was wondering if we could talk in a very introductory manner, you know, what, what are the general lessons that we get out of the history of women in Buddhism, both for those of us who are scholars of Buddhism generally, who might want to focus on this particular subject, but also... Uh, non-specialists who might be reading this, whether they're students or or scholars of other parts of the world. um, Why should we all care about women in Buddhism, in other words?
1: Well, I think I can answer that in in three words. Uh, What do we get about uh, studying women in Buddhism? Well, we learn to value women. Or you could say we learn to value women and to value their contributions. And um, there was a review of one of my books done in 2013 by Charles Hallison. And he said something that's always stayed with me, actually. He said something like, uh, when we study women, we study everything. And um, there is a need, actually, when we we study women, to think about and to come to it from a variety of perspectives. So uh, in the study of women, we can draw on... Uh, uh historical data and theory from a variety of different academic perspectives so that you know we can't remember study women we can study everything you know um anthropology sociology philology psychology ethics history archaeology art history etc etc um so there's a great deal i think we can get from studying women which is um learning how to approach a subject of study and the discipline in a multidisciplinary way, as well as learning something about uh, women and men
0: more generally. Well, we're running towards the end of our time here today. I wanted to finish with just our traditional traditional closing question here on the the network. what are you working on next? Uh,
1: well, I'm not doing any research at the moment. Actually, I'm uh, I'm heading up a new project in the UK on um, which is focusing on decolonising the curriculum. So currently, I'm doing more management than I am research. Now, usually, when an academic will say that to you, uh, they won't they won't be thrilled at that, and uh, <laughs> they'll be saying it when, uh, uh, and feel some negativity towards it. But actually I'm, I'm very excited about the new project which we're launching next March. But yeah, so for the time being, uh, I'm doing more managing the, the research, but actually I'm happy about that at the moment.
0: Wonderful. I'll, I'll hugely look forward to uh, seeing whatever the outputs of that project are. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today, Alice. It was wonderful to talk more about this book. Um, I thoroughly loved reading it i hope that everyone who listens to this podcast uh, has equal joy from it
1: well thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it well, i appreciate it all right
0: well bye for now